This is from uh, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. What did Jesus tell his apostles? Heaven is right here in the midst of you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a prediction that to this day few people have understood. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In modern versions of the Bible, meek is translated as humble. And what does it mean that they shall inherit the earth? The meek are the egoless. They are those who have awakened to their essential true nature as consciousness and recognize that, that essence in all, other, uh, in all others, all life forms. They live in the surrendered state and so feel their oneness with the whole and the source. They embody the awakened consciousness that is changing all aspects of life on our planet, including nature, because life on earth is inseparable from the human consciousness that perceives and interacts with it. That is the sense in which the meek shall inherit the earth. Some of the most profound experiences I've had in the past few years have been listening to the personal stories people have told me about their lives. Last year, I met a farmer in Costa Rica who had worked on a banana plantation for an international corporation. And he was riding on a bulldozer with another laborer. And they were taking trees down and soil, destroying the rainforest, um, trying to create land for the bananas, when he saw a baby monkey hold its hands up like this. And they couldn't stop the machine. It kept going. And after that day, he quit that job because he couldn't work for that. He couldn't, he couldn't buy into that anymore. And so, obviously, he didn't have a lot of opportunities. He was living, he was a laborer in Central America. But what he did was he saved every penny he could get his hands on. And he developed a small organic farm on a very hilly and wet and rainforesty area. And he's committed the last few years of his life because he was contaminated by pesticides. He has contaminated, the, he's devoted those last five years of his life to educating people worldwide on how to live in concert with the earth and how to farm organically. And so his story is so moving. And he brings people onto his, he's, he's building a, rooming house so people can come and stay and learn how to make soil and work with the land right there. Um, Last year, I also met a woman outside of El Paso, Texas, who lives by herself in a trailer that has very few services. She has no running water. She doesn't have air conditioning. And she was separated from her husband about over 24 years ago. And due to immigration law, they've been unable to reunite but he calls her every night and sings to her on the phone. And then a good friend of mine, she grew up in the Deep South in a, in a fairly religious environment, and it was quite repressive. And she used her intellect and her strong-arming to get herself into the military to escape, and then she put herself through law school. And she's been able to use her intellect to become this really strong mother and spouse. But a few years ago, she got a traumatic brain injury, and she's been angry, and she's been so spiteful because she hasn't been able to be the mother. She wanted to be a nurturing mother who made everything from scratch, and everything was about art and being outside. But instead, she was angry and volatile, 
and she couldn't understand why her brain couldn't get her back into being the mother she wanted to be. And so what she's slowly done is realize that it's, she has to feel her way back into being a mother and a spouse, that her mind isn't going to get her there. And then I've heard countless stories, dozens of stories from teenagers across the country who've shared their own stories of loss, disappointment, grieving from a, a loss of a parent or a divorce or a learning disability or some other setback. And so every time I hear a story like this, my heart opens and I typically cry. And I think this happens because through storytelling, we touch on a truth that resides in all of us and it connects us. And when we hear something that resonates with our hearts, we're moved because we realize the truth that we are in fact one. That there is one intelligence and love energy is expressing through all of us, which is ultimately a desire to love and to be loved. When we are courageous enough to shed the layers of identity, beliefs, ego, separation, and protection, something vulnerable comes through, and we see that we truly are connected by love or God. When we finally look deeply enough within ourselves, we begin to recognize our own true selves in the words of spiritual leaders who have pointed to this throughout the ages. Paul Farini states in his book, Love Without Conditions, All experience happens for one purpose only, to expand your awareness. Any other meaning you see in your life experience is a meaning that you made up. You may not decide at a conscious level what will happen to you, but you will most definitely interpret what happens according to your beliefs. Your primary freedom lies in learning from the experiences that come your way. Of course, you can refuse to learn from your experiences, but this choice leads to suffering, and if you don't know this yet, it won't be long before you do. I've certainly had some heart-opening experiences that changed the direction of my life, but it wasn't until I became more awake and aware through hardship, meditation, and through hearing the similarities through other stories that I began to integrate the lessons offered in this human experience. Miracles occur every day in our lives. When we are constantly going and doing and checking off lists and planning and scheming, we don't always see the miraculous encounters or the exchanges or the synchronicities in our day. So it's helpful to pause and connect the dots. Go back in time and see how there might have been a greater purpose in every circumstance, whether it was positive or negative. Sometimes we can identify where the awakening began by looking back to the first big jolt in our lives. It could be a loss of innocence or a dramatic change or a traumatic event that wakes us from living unconsciously. For me, this was a trip to Nicaragua in 1993. I was 17 years old, and the extent of my life experience included living in Boulder and in a, in a secure, predictable family um, with regular dinner times and Friday night excursions to the video store. I had taken some exotic vacations to Minnesota, <laughs> Ohio, Minnesota, um, Illinois, and, and Southern California to sit on screened-in porches and listen to relatives talk about health ailments. 
But in my junior year, Boulder Sister Cities came to my church youth group and invited us to participate in a teen delegation to Chusli, Nicaragua, which is north up near the Honduran border, to build a potable water system. My limited mindset, my small utopia Boulder mindset, took me right to the fant- fantasy of palm trees, getting tan, riding in an airplane with friends, since I had only been on one airplane at that time, and swimming in a volcano, which was promised. I was in. We each had to raise money ourselves in order to get a match from an anonymous donor, and I was willing to do anything for this vacation. My vacation became a distant fantasy the minute we landed in Managua. There were camouflaged soldiers all over the tarmac, and there were women and children plastered to the airport begging for food and money. On our way to the hotel in Managua, there were barefoot children in giant intersections selling chicles and trying to shine shoes for a couple of coins in the middle of huge intersections. Families could be seen climbing around in mountains of garbage looking for food. The glow of television screens could be seen through cinder block huts with no doors or windows. The smell of burning trash engulfed us, and from this moment on, my body just sort of adapted and went into autopilot to the experience of hearing roosters, running down unmarked streets, sleeping on plastic-coated mattresses, and being swept up into the crowds of Managua, which at that time they were celebrating the, rev- the, cel- they were celebrating the revolution of the Sandinistas, or the Sandinista Revolution. It was definitely an exotic trip. But the jolt that transformed me happened when we traveled north toward Jalapa and Chusli. We drove through a town called Esteli, and then an hour later we arrived in Ocotal, and this was starting to be a mountainous region. And we got out for milkshakes and to go to the bathroom before heading deeper into the mountains. When we got back to the bus, the bus driver informed us that we needed to stay in Ocotal because just after we passed Esteli, Contra rebels had killed 83 civilians. And he got reports on the radio that they were burning government buses in the north. And so we were unable to continue our journey. So we checked into a hotel, and we had warm Fantas and stale bread. The 15 of us, including the chaperones, had been struck down by Montezuma's revenge. And there was a venomous spider the size of my fist above the toilet, which had no seat and no flush that it wouldn't flush. So we were just sharing this little bowl. And I shared a twin bed with my friend on a plastic-coated mattress. After the first night, we woke to the sound of machine gun fire and grenades. The cobblestone streets were torn apart to create barricades alongside sandbags. There was no way to communicate with the United States Embassy or our parents, so we stayed below the windows in the hotel until we were given permission to go outside. We, excuse me. We stayed in Ocotal for three days. But all services had been shut off, including phone lines and water. When things calmed down, we'd visit the Catholic Church down the way. It was in that church that I realized that all I wanted ever again was to see my family one more time. After the third day, we could call home, and I remember choking on tears 
and not be able, being able to talk. Obviously, we were okay, and we did resume the trip, actually. We went up to Chusli, and we dug trenches in the jungle with Contra rebels keeping watch over the village. But it shook me to the core and fundamentally changed me forever, cracking the door slightly to my spiritual path. I was sitting on the dirt floor of my homestay family, eating ice cream and singing with about 20 people from the village, crammed into the tiny living room, when I realized that happiness isn't something that's ever bought. It comes from the simplest things, like being with people you can't even communicate with, except through eye contact and laughter. Upon return, I completely lost interest in material possessions and fitting in. I couldn't relate to my peer group anymore. I retreated and spent more time with my parents. I began to love learning for the first time. I really hated school up until this point. This was a turning point and invitation into becoming conscious and compassionate. This new perspective pushed me into the social sciences and teaching. Although my value system changed and I was drawn to making a difference in the world, I wasn't necessarily on a committed spiritual path yet. The doing required to complete school and get jobs kept my mind on the external world, which continued the process of being a victim of conditions and circumstances, leading to reactive behavior on the ongoing roller coaster of my life. I did ride on an amazing roller coaster after college. I accumulated knowledge and beliefs that shaped me as a specific type of person which did lead me to expansive and rich opportunities and experiences. I became an accumulation of these experiences, and my identity was based on my lifestyle, my political beliefs, my choices, my job, my car, my dog, and my travels, and anything else that could set me apart as unique and separate from others. My husband and I got married, We built our life based on our uniqueness. By aligning ourselves with our identity, we inadvertently became separate from others. We are this. They are that. We do this and they do that. We make these choices. They make those choices. And this worked out for us for a long time, as long as things went our way. And then bit by bit, everything we built and identified with was stripped away. It seems that as long as life is working out for us, and as long as we feel like we're in control, we can go about our lives without any need to gain any deeper wisdom. It's when we feel betrayed by conditions and circumstances that we seek a more meaningful way to exist. But in order to grow emotionally and spiritually, it is necessary not only to experience loss, grief, desperation, and despair, but to also examine our own role and our own consciousness. We all experience loss and despair, and for some of us, it can be devastating. It's the willingness to feel through it that opens the door to learning and living an authentic and spiritual life. Arkan Lashwala, a teacher and leader in Peruvian and Lakota traditions, says in his book, The Time of the Black Jaguar, According to what I have seen, real change happens in three different ways. The first way is a gift from spirit, an enormous blessing that comes to us unexpectedly 
like an event that awakens our mind. The second way is the way of the black jaguar, which comes and says, it is enough, and destroys the prisons where we feel safe and comfortable so we may wake up. The third way is what in the Andes they call mune, the will of the heart. So to, the, to me this means that as we mature into adults, we have experiences that expand our minds, preparing us for our journey into adulthood. As adults, once we create the life we think we want, to, using our minds to secure our sense of control, something typically happens that brings us to our knees and keeps doing so until we succumb to the will of the heart. My experience in Nicaragua was a gift from spirit that served as a first awakening. But it was when my safety and security was threatened as a mother that I was called to anchor into something bigger that has brought insight and wisdom into my life. My safe and comfortable prison was challenged during my first pregnancy. Surrender began our 20-week ultrasound when a problem was detected in my son's kidneys. This led to an emergency cesarean section, which interfered with our attachment to a Bradley birth, which was a special birthing method that we were taking classes for because we were still unique. (laughs) This was just the beginning. There was fear, grief, and despair associated with my pregnancy and my son's birth and a surgery when he was seven weeks old. But otherwise, our life was working out. We owned a condo in Basalt, and had free housing in Snowmass Village. I could resign from teaching and stay home with my baby. From the outside, this was amazing. There were still identities we could attach to in this situation, except on the inside, we were miserable. I was lonely. My community vanished when I resigned from my job. My husband hated his job and felt exploited. There was no family around just feet upon feet of snow and isolation. We sought joy outside of ourselves. It was like this year, but in Snowmass Village and employee housing. (laughs) We sought joy outside of ourselves through the approval of others, always seeking the approval from other family members and friends, excessive exercise, passive entertainment. In fact, I used to get upset if my son interfered with law and order at 9 o'clock on FX. Pass and alcohol. Then one weekend in the dark and snowy days of February, our free housing was flooded with sewage. And that marked the beginning of a collapse. (laughs) We left the Roaring Fork Valley and found ourselves living hand to mouth under desperate circumstances. Every aspect of our ego was stripped away, leaving only fragile and vulnerable nerve endings susceptible to pain in nearly everything and everyone we encountered. But again, in connecting the dots, I can now recognize the blessings in losing everything we worked so hard for. As Catherine Ponder states in her book, The Prosperity Secrets of the Ages, where she examines the flood allegory, flood experiences come to you in the guise of confusion, loss, disappointment, ill health, hard financial conditions, inharmony, even betrayal in human relationships. However, a flood of such circumstances is not an unfortunate experience at all. 
It is a time when your whole being is being purified, cleansed, and readjusted. It is a time when balance and equilibrium are taking place. It is a time to release, loose, let go, and let your new good come forth in ways you may not have dreamed possible. It was at one of the lowest points in our life that I felt closest to God. We moved seven times in a four-year period. We had exhausted all our financial resources to stay afloat. Family relationships were severely strained, and there were unforeseen challenges with our baby daughter. We were in a cycle of blame, victimization, shame, anxiety, and anger. And unless we changed our thinking, we would continue attracting negative experiences. Slowly, we adopted a practice of affirmative prayer and meditation. I began a daily gratitude journal and began to recognize miracles, such as how a car accident led to meeting a chiropractor who diagnosed a chronic food allergy, or how getting my car stuck on a snowy driveway in Lyons led us to meeting our neighbor who helped me, and she ended up being our realtor who helped us purchase a home again. We built a community of friends from the most vulnerable and authentic parts of ourselves because we had nothing else except that. And that allowed us to grow deep roots and be anchored in a supportive, unconditionally loving community. The simplicity of our life during that time allowed us to spend more time in nature. Sometimes my babies would sleep on my back in the woods, and all I had was the sound of wind in the ponderosas and my thoughts, which were often disturbing. (laughs) And this was when I began to know my inner wisdom. Something was shifting within me, which Rumi touches on in this quote. Grief can be the garden of compassion. If you keep your heart open through everything, your pain can become your greatest ally in your life's search for love and wisdom. Some of our darkest moments occurred in the beginning of the recession. As we struggled, our hearts opened to the experiences people were having around the country. The flood took several shapes and forms for different people. For us, it was financial ruin, leaving the life we once loved, and feeling judged, shamed, and misunderstood. For some close friends, it was divorce. We were all experiencing loss at that time. But as our comfortable prisons were destroyed, love and compassion emerged. As I integrated more and more of the spiritual teachings we were learning, my thoughts and actions shifted my beliefs about our life, thereby inviting greater blessings. I began to understand how my suffering was caused by my own thoughts and beliefs. Little by little, I met life with love. I started yielding to other drivers in traffic. (laughs) I beamed at all strangers. I went out of my way to smile at strangers. I ignored my pride in order to love those who withheld love and tithed generously when we couldn't spare a dime. As my approach to life changed, prosperity came in ways I never expected. New career opportunities, healed relationships, and especially insights that that surpassed my experience and education. It didn't mean we stopped encountering black jaguars. There have been plenty, and there are numerous situations every day 
that attempt to take my peace. And sometimes, well, often, they succeed. Challenges will always spiral in and out of our lives. But when we pause and listen for divine guidance from within, when we engage in counsel with those around us, and when we spend time in nature, we become more insightful and resilient and can therefore maintain our peace when life spins around us. Paul Farini says, Your whole experience on earth is a process of learning to trust in yourself, in your brother, and in God. In the final moment of awakening, when trust blossoms fully, these three aspects of self merge into one. As we begin to experience life more acutely, feeling everything versus numbing, running, projecting, deflecting, or avoiding, and we share more and more of our stories with each other and invite each other into our darkest corners, we will indeed begin to merge because the wisdom of God is present within each and every one of us, and we will recognize our true selves in each other. And when we truly believe that we are one with God and one with each other, regardless of who we are on the outside or where we've come from or the lifestyle that we're living, we will no longer be able to tolerate injustice, inequality, abuse, neglect, poverty, waste, or hate. And once we see that we are expressions of God's love, we'll finally truly forgive and heal ourselves which will in turn heal all life on this planet. So you now have a glimpse of some of the experiences that have shaped my life and that have helped me begin to, as Eckhart Tolle would say, feel my oneness with the whole and the source. And of course, there's much more shaping to be done in order to live in a purely humbled and surrendered state. But perhaps you can think about all the experiences, both wonderful and tragic, that have shaped your life. Can you connect the dots and recognize the miracles that led to who you are today? What events have humbled you and brought you closer to the divine consciousness that dwells deep inside that shape? 